Don't look now. Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman. Coming to you with another podcast this week of, of course, a topic unknown to me, known only to Jenny, usually of interest to me as well, but we'll find out what we're talking about soon. So, So what are we talking about, Jenny? Well, this is the second part of our Lizzie Borden expose. Oh, yes. And I know what it is this week. Duh. You know what we're talking about. Yay. Yeah, unless you decided to like, you know, pull the fast one and not have a part two after a part one, but you know. I've thought about it, but I also realized that that's actually really hard for listeners that are trying to pay attention to what's going on. Um, yeah. I think I learned my lesson the last time that I screwed with everybody and did that. So <laughs> I, I listen sometimes. Yep. Okay. So just a quick recap. Um, this is a Gilded Age murder story, which means it took place in the late 1800s during the robber baron phases. Uh, we left off with Lizzie Borden has just been arrested for the murder of her stepmother and her father. So, here we go. Yep. Immediately after her arrest, Lizzie becomes America's wasp princess. And by <laughs> wasp, it's the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, princess. And people basically could not say enough nice things about her. So the initial like <laughs> news reports were like this stoic, calm, very possessed. And like, even the police chief says she's a remarkable woman and possessed a wonderful power of fortitude. Like she had all this icy cold demeanor and they just were really proud of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's a perfect waspy sociopath. It's all good. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one reporter who was a Providence reporter and a civil war veteran said, most women would faint at the sight of seeing her father dead. Um, because I never saw a more horrible sight and I walked all over battlefields where people were dead and mangled. So she must be a woman of remarkable nerve and self-control. <laughs> or she freaking did it. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> or she freaking did it. Right. Um, in the New York Sun, they said it's plain to see that she had complete mastery of herself and she could make her sensations and emotions invisible to the impertinent public. <laughs> and then she decides to jump in and make herself known to the newspapers as well. So she does an interview so that she can like give them firsthand knowledge of who she is as well. Right. Yeah. So. She says to them, they say I don't show any grief. Of course I don't, not in public. Um, I never did really reveal my feelings and I'm not going to change who I am now. There you go. Still very okie doke. <laughs> so this seems, seems a little interesting considering this next thing I'm going to tell you. There's a fight that goes down between Lizzie and her sister, Emma, while Lizzie's in jail awaiting trial. Um, and the police matron describes it as such. Lizzie says to Emma, Emma, you've given me away, haven't you? And Emma goes, no, Lizzie, I haven't. And, and then Lizzie replies, you have, and I'll let you see. I won't give you one inch. 
like what and then lizzie turns over on her cot and lays with her back to her sister who's still sitting in a chair and they sat like that because you know as protestants they stop talking when they get pissed off at each other and they just sat there for two and a half hours not saying anything (laughs) until visiting time was over and emma left which is just fabulous so the police matron um spills this story of course to the press and her lawyers were like this is all a lie you need to demand a retraction and she was like "Mm, no no i'm not gonna do that so the biographer at the time of lizzie borden said that like this two-hour sulk is pretty typical of how they fought in their family um so it's probably more likely that it happened than that it was made up by this matron who once again they point out is an irish person yeah like, poke the Irish. Poke yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's Irish, so her trustworthiness is, but you know. Exactly. But yeah, but it's probably the it's sort of thing that was normalized enough for the Bordens that she didn't think it was odd enough behavior to demand an attraction, you know, a retraction and just be like, well, that's how people behave, right? You know. Right. That's just, that's how we fight. It's someone fun. angers you, you just sulk and refuse to talk to them ever again, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know. So it wasn't until they started to interrogate Lizzie that it her like public view starts to go downhill. So she's in interrogation and the officers are like, okay, because she doesn't really respond well or how they think she will. Mm-hmm. So like they're asking her questions and she never once cries, never has a tear drop out of her eye about the death of her loved ones. Um, and then they discovered that she had tried to purchase that poison a few days before the murder. Remember before she went to the beach house, which, okay. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I explained when she tried to buy this poison. So it was a few days before she was due at the beach house during that heat wave. And she goes to the neighborhood drugstore to buy prussic acid. Um, and the druggist testimony they exclude from the trial because of a technicality, but it kind of establishes her in a moment of straightforwardness. So apparently what happened was in the middle of the day in broad daylight, in the middle of the heat wave, she marches into this drugstore with a fur cape and <laughs> says that there's moths in it. And she wants 10 cents of prussic acid to kill it. And he's like, uh, we don't do that. We can't sell it. It's illegal. And he's like, and her response is, I don't know what you're talking about. I've bought it plenty of times before. (laughs) That seems like a lot, by the way, um, to, to put arsenic, well, prussic acid on a a fur. I'm not really sure how that works. Like you just put it in the closet and hope that it kills the, the moths. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know prussic acid. So, I mean, I've heard that name before, but I don't, is that, do you know what's, particularly it is or it must be pretty bad because arsenic was still sold over the counter at the time yeah yeah so So, something noxious as hell so yeah right it's super noxious and the druggist is like real confused so he says to her you know my lady it's something we don't sell except by prescription because it's super dangerous just to handle it the other thing that's happening at the time, remember, they're really anti-Irish people, but the Irish population in this town is super surging at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and police officering is a very popular um, job for Irishmen to go into. 
Yep. So on the day of the murders, the Irish police versus just the police, you know, we have to <laughs> distinguish it, um, were the ones that were in force on the Borden house and property. So some of them interviewed Lizzie. One interrogated her in her bedroom. <laughs> and apparently, like, she took this to mean that they were all beneath her. So she treated them all very poorly. <laughs> and over time, like, the case became this big it became more about all the Irish police against this wasp princess than it was about <laughs> Lizzie Borden, like murdering her family, which I think is interesting. Huh. Um, so what really started to shift though, was they elect the city's second Irish mayor and suddenly, you know, it was more and more acceptable to be Irish kind of. Yeah. Um, one of the newspapers, the fall river globe, was a militant working class Irish daily that went after the robber barons. So they started to rise up against people like Lizzie's family. Yeah. Um, and soon after they started to focus on the fact that they thought she was rather guilty, if nothing else, because her father was guilty of <laughs> treating the Irish poorly, which I think yeah. is an interesting way to go about it. Um, and another thing was that they promoted these rumors that the Bordens were pooling millions to ensure that she would never be convicted. So they're like, oh, no, all that money that her father had, everyone in the family's pooling it together. She's going to get this defense and she's going to walk. Hmm. So five days after the murders, authorities convened an inquest and Lizzie takes the stand each day. And the inquest was the only time that she um, testified in court under oath. So even more than all the inconsistencies that they had on record, um, Lizzie's testimony kind of just seemed like self-incrimination every time that she turned around. She didn't really have a defense lawyer during the closed inquiry, but she wasn't without defenders. So like um, her family doctor who totally believed that she was innocent would kept prescribing her double doses of morphine during this time to help her sleep. Um, and the side effects were why he said that she always seemed really confused and her story was never straight and why mm -hmm. she was super calm and why she didn't have any emotions. And then her sister, Emma said that, you know, we didn't hate our stepmother. So she's got these people on the stand. They're like, no, we love our stepmom. Oh no. She's acting like this because she's super doped up, you know, like, yeah. Oh, well, maybe these all sound like logical things, you know, mm -hmm. but then you get the police investigation. You have the families and the neighbors who are like, right. Her sister is on vacation 15 miles away. The only people that are at the house is Lizzie and the maid Bridget. Um, and Bridget was washing floors on the outside of the house while Abby was slaughtered. And then shortly after Andrew returns home, he's bludgeoned, right? And during that time when he was killed, Bridget was up in her attic bedroom. So no one, the one person that was not clearly accountable was always Lizzie. Yeah. And they all determined. So the judge, the district attorney, the police marshal, everybody was like, she's probably guilty. But they didn't really have any proof. Yeah. But since they thought she was probably guilty, she was arrested officially on August 11th, a week after the murders and sent to County jail. 
um, where she spent a, the next nine months in a nine and a half by seven and a half foot cell. Her arrest provoked an uproar that quickly became national. Because she was involved in the Women's Christian Temperance Union and part of the suffragist movement, uh, women's groups were like, oh, no, and, like, went all out about this. Um, And one of the big things that they protested was that she was not going to be judged at trial by a jury of her peers because women as non-voters could not serve on juries. So huh. it would never be a fair trial, which that is, is actually a pretty decent argument. If you want to know the truth. Yeah. I actually believe it or not that it never occurred to me that, you know, I mean, as part of the whole suffragette thing, and it did not occur to me that they were not serving on juries. I just assumed that, you know, they got the county voting, yeah. from other things besides just voter roll, but yeah. Uh, yeah. It affects a lot. Yeah. That, that is a huge freaking deal. Okay. Yeah. So Lizzie could afford the best legal reps in the world. Like I said, she had millions, right? Um, So during the preliminary trial, one of Boston's most prominent defense lawyers joins the family attorney and they advocate for her innocence. Um, In the small courtroom above the police station, it was totally packed with all of her supporters, especially all the women that lived on that hill that she was friendly with. Um, And at times, like everybody was really like happy and really they thought that oh she's definitely innocent and then there were times where they're like "Ah, what (laughs) um one of the things that got them all really excited was that there was no blood on the axe or the hatchets that the police retrieved from the Mm -hmm. from the cellar um and then another thing was that lizzie had turned over to the police two days after the murder the dress that she was supposedly wearing and there was only like a little drop of blood which would have been possible from running into the room and finding people, not blood, right? And her attorneys are stressing that the prosecution had no murder weapon. There was no bloody clothes. Um, The prussic acid that she tried to buy at the drugstore, that was a victim of misidentification, which meant that they had to throw it out. In addition to all this, all of her friends were unable to, like, consider what they saw they, they thought of her as being a well-bred, virtuous Victorian woman or a Protestant nun, which I think is funny. <laughs> um, they didn't think that there was any way that yeah. she could have committed this murder, including the, le- the national president of the Temperance Union. Yeah. Which, when you got people like that behind you, it's hard to, to change your mind sometimes. So, ah. <laughs> uh, they didn't like the word spinster. So they started using the word Protestant nun over time in the late huh. 19th century in new England uh, to talk about women who remain single later in their life. Uh, it helped get away from that idea of the spinster of being this virtuous Victorian woman, because that was super unrealistic and rather oppressive. They thought that it was a true woman who was morally pure physically delicate and socially respectable. Although they said many a times they did not consider her physically delicate, but whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So they thought that this Protestant nun was the better way of saying it. Um, Sure. So once again, at the prelim hearing, Lindsay's Lizzie's defense attorney delivers this really rousing closing argument and everybody erupts into loud applause. And the judge was like, I'm she's, she's probably guilty (laughs) once again (laughs) she's probably guilty um and so she needed to stay in jail until they could do a superior court trial 
Neither the attorney general who typically prosecuted capital crimes nor the district attorney wanted to take her to superior court though. They were like, no, she's just straight up guilty. There is no reason for us to play around on this. Right. Yeah. Um, but there were holes in the police evidence. So while her place in local order was not right. Um, also there was no evidence really tying her to anything. So even though he didn't have to, the district attorney brought the case before a grand jury in November and he wasn't sure that he could get an indictment. So they had 23 jurors convened to hear the case on the charges of murder. They adjourn no action. They readjourn or reconvene in December and they hear this really dramatic testimony. What? All right. I don't know if you remember, we talked about Alice Russell previously in our episode. She is the spinster neighbor who they run to quite frequently. So Alice Russell is the single pious 40 year old member of the central congressional and was Lizzie's close friend. Shortly after Andrew had been killed, um, Lizzie sent Bridget to get Alice not to go get help. Yeah. Right. And then after the murders, Alice stayed with Lizzie for several nights. Um, literally while the brutalized victims are stretched out on mortician boards in the dining room, (laughs) which is why couldn't you go stay with your friend? Why did they have to stay here? (laughs) And Russell testified at the inquest, the preliminary hearing and before the grand jury, but she'd never really disclosed this one really important detail. Distressed over the fact that she didn't mention it over and over. She consulted a lawyer who said she had to tell the district attorney. So on December 1st, she returned to the grand jury and testified that on the Sunday morning after the, in- the murders, Lizzie pulled a dress from a shelf in the pantry and burned it on a cast <laughs> iron stove. Shocker. The next day, Lizzie's indicted. Yeah. Now, if that's their whole evidence is off of this, that she omitted part of me wonders if she got paid off. Yeah. Right. Still, the district attorney or the attorney general and the district attorney were like, mm, it's still not really good evidence because it's hearsay at this yeah, point. Yeah, you don't have it's anything not. other than somebody saying it. So, yeah. Right. So the attorney general bows out of the case the next April. He'd been getting sick and the doctor conveniently said, you know, he couldn't really withstand the demands of this trial anymore. So he needed to just, you know, duck out. So in his place, there was a district attorney from north of Boston um, who emerges, you know, tries to be the, the tough city kid, and he's going to take things on. His name's <laughs> Hosea Knowlton. So Knowlton believes that she's guilty, but also that he doesn't have anything to convict her. Uh, but yet he was like, it's my duty to prosecute her. And so he did so, um, including having this really well done five hour five hours closing argument (laughs) so a new york reporter who thought that lizzie was innocent wrote in the article for that day that the district attorney's eloquent appeal to the jury entitled him to rank with the ablest advocates of the day and he thought the new district attorney thought for sure that they had a hung jury well within his grasp And that it might satisfy everybody, you know, both those that thought she was guilty, both those that thought she was innocent, if he could just get that, right? 
Mm-hmm. And then if new evidence emerges, if they have this hung jury, then they could try her and make sure yeah. she's guilty. They just need to find the evidence. Well, <laughs> I think he underestimated what was happening culturally and legally where he was. So Lizzie's demeanor in court, um, which he did not really anticipate, also really influenced people. So in this courtroom, there's not women in the room really with her other than behind her. There's Mm no female jurors. It's all male lawyers, bailiff, judge, that whole thing. So she kind of looks a little bit helpless. So I don't know if you knew during Casey Anthony's trial after her daughter was murdered, Mm -hmm. they told her to dress very like demure yeah. And put her in like sundresses and little girl clothes and made her look super innocent. Yep. Um, so they did the same thing during the Lizzie Borden trial. This was like that good first instance of it, right? She's dressed all in black like she's mourning. She has really tight court, like really tight corsets, um, long flowing clothes. She's holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand, a fan in the other, and just this quiet, modest, really well bred quiet girl um and like it was supposed to to be the the negating of everything negative being said to her in the papers because the papers that thought she was guilty was saying that she was this big brawny muscular hard-faced coarse woman she was an amazonian proportions and (laughs) the big old broad right so this was this way to make her look just very I couldn't have the physical strength to beat someone with an axe. Yeah, yeah. Right? And also, like, she has these really good, like, lawyers. They're really good. One of them is a former governor who had appointed, like, three of the justices that presided over her case. (laughs) So the justice delivers to the the jury. um, And he's like, we want you to plea for innocence. And everyone else is like, (laughs) okay. So if we take out the thing about the prussic acid, because it could be used for innocent. I mean, that's once again, hearsay. We can't really say anything about the dress. There's no evidence. Okay. So then the final thing, the jury was presented the prosecution with a big hurdle. Um, So Fall River was excluded from the jury pool because we can't have people in town that know this family be on this jury because that's, it's a small enough town. That's just not right. Right. So what happened was half of the jurors were farmers. The other half were tradesmen. One owned a metal factory in New Bedford, but most were practicing Protestants. Most of them had daughters, Lizzie's age. One sole Irishman made it onto the jury. Um, (laughs) And they all just looked at her and they were like, I think we should acquit her. Yeah. And no shit. That's what they did. They immediately (laughs) met within an hour, made a decision. And then they waited the rest of the hour because they didn't want people to think they made the decision too quickly. They were just (laughs) like, well, there's no, and and once again, there's no evidence. They have no choice but to acquit her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They have nothing. So yeah, they acquit her after an hour's deliberation crazy to me um and after her acquittal she buys a mansion for herself and her sister in the best neighborhood in fall river um but she's not really obviously like 
accepted back into society. Yeah. First off, she's been in prison for a year. Second off, she was like thought to have murdered her father and her stepmother. So she tried to go back to work at Central Congressional and everybody was really polite, but like waspy polite. Yeah. So she kind of got the hint and she was like, okay, I'm going to quit. You guys are fine. Don't worry. I'm rich anyway now because yeah. my, my father and stepmother were murdered. So I have like $10 million. It's fine. Whatever. So she lived quietly until 1904 when she got arrested for shoplifting in Providence, which is funny. <laughs> um, and I guess that that's the thing that really made her an outcast because everybody was like, I'm sorry, you got arrested for shoplifting. You're a multimillionaire. Pull your shit together. And then in 1913, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Emma moves out of the house with Lizzie and never speaks to her again. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, the people thought, well, maybe she confessed to the murders finally, and that's probably not it. What it sounds more like, though, is that Emma learned the real dark secret about Lizzie. And now it's 100% conjecture. So everyone, like, stay on yeah. this ride. We're moving forward. <laughs> so the big joke is that Emma found out that Lizzie had sex. <laughs> Only not the kind of sex that was appropriate for Protestants at the time. Yeah. Uh, so Lizzie was an enthusiastic theater goer and a really big fan of an actress by the name of Nance O'Neill. They met in a hotel, had a really intense friendship, um, and Lizzie would throw these really lavish parties for Nance and all the theater troupe. She paid for all of Nance's legal expenses and contractual disputes with theater owners. Um, and she was, there were letters that were found after Lizzie passed years later. That was probably the, she was probably the supposed to be the recipient of the letters that started mm -hmm. things like, dear friend, I dreamed of you the other night, but I dare not put my dreams on paper. <laughs> so the, the story is, is that Emma discovered that her sister was a lesbian um, mm -hmm. and moved out because she couldn't handle that information. I don't know. Who knows? Lizzie stayed, however, living alone in her mansion until she died in 1927 when she died of, of pneumonia. Emma, who lived in New Hampshire, read about her sister's death in the paper, did not attend the funeral or send flowers. That girl, these <laughs> women knew how to hold some damn grudges. Ten days later, Emma died from a bad fall. Both of their sisters left most of their fortune to the Animal Rescue League. They liked pets. I like there it. Um, and then I guess that there was a little bit of an explanation on why no one ever spoke to her like why did fall river turn their back on lizzie borden during these final yeah. years of her life so like somebody went and knocked on the neighbor's door and they're like so what was the deal with her and they were like um well dear she was very unkind to her mother and father <laughs> and then in 2012 some journals that were kept by lizzie's lawyer were obtained by the fall river historical society um they didn't really say anything. It's not like they say who killed the Bordens or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that they did note was that he had observations about his client that he wrote down and none of them were like cold blooded and callous. She was really just grieving constantly for her family that was lost, which really like turns this story for me. Yeah. yeah. Either she really won him over thinking that she was, you know, grieving her family or 
She was actually not just, that bad of a person. She was actually just a legitimate wasp that was not going to show her emotions in public. So, you know. Exactly. So let's go down the rabbit hole. I've got a whole mess of things that we can talk about with this. So the first thing was um, immediately after the murder, remember they had found a hatchet and there was a bloody hatchet found right after the murders, but it was found on the neighbor's farm. <laughs> so they thought that she ran out, threw it in the yard and then ran back in. Only guess what? It had chicken blood on it. <laughs> but at the time they were like, this is it. This is definitely the murder. Yeah. Weapon. Yeah. No. Another alternate theory was that there was a man who had been wandering around the Borden's property. So for a few days before they'd had this kind of like dude that, like slept in the barn one night, wandered yeah. around, just was seen a lot. But he had a near tight alibi. He was at the bar drinking during the day. <laughs> and then here's another one. This one I thought was interesting. Apparently, Andrew Borden had an illegitimate son by the name of William. Some people think that he's actually the one that committed the crime and that Lizzie and Emma actually conspired to cover up all the involvement. Um, or that Lizzie actually carried it out these murders so that they could get him on the will, but they seem really like really just greedy ladies. Like yeah, I can't they, see them doing this to yeah, they weren't gonna help their stuff. Get some illegitimate son in, yeah. Yeah, no. Um some people thought that Lizzie and Bridget, Maggie, were having an affair. And they decided to kill them together so that they could have their affair because her stepmom saw them and then they had to kill her and then they had to kill her dad. Like, it's just a little convoluted for me. Yeah. So probably not. And then I found this really crazy theory that Lizzie Borden, who is suspected of being a lesbian, actually did have a child that she gave up for adoption at some point. Mm -hmm. So here's the story. There's this lady that's doing genealogy research and she found a ton of coincidences that made her believe that the person that she was tracing is actually the offspring of Lizzie Borden. Um, because the person that she was tracking through genealogy also had homicidal tendencies with an ax. <laughs> that's genetic, as you know. Clearly. Uh, <laughs> so this lady uh, had attacked her husband with an ax. Um, she also had affairs with the police officers in her town just a lot but one of the things that she remembered was visiting her aunts emma and elizabeth borden in fall river hmm. i don't know i mean i wonder if that's a common name up there anyhow um let's see what else oh so remember i talked about lizzie is in the house and bridget heard her giggling at one point yeah so the family uh -huh. made Bridget would testify that on the morning of the murders, after Mr. Borden returned from his walk, his key failed to open the door to the house. So Bridget walks around the house and she found the doors jammed shut and she tries to get it open and she starts swearing. And when she starts swearing, she said she could hear Lizzie laughing at the top of the stairs, listening to them fighting the door, mm -hmm. but never came to help them, which they thought was spooky but then Lizzie was like, I was never at the top of the stairs. <laughs> so that's one of those weird coincidences. Yeah. And then here's the really gross part about this whole murder for you. 
So when the hatchet killed their step, the stepmother first, because of the, her dying before her husband died, all of her personal wealth was actually transferred to her husband Yeah. in the 30 minutes or whatever before he died. And then when he died, all of that wealth was passed on to the daughters. Convenient, huh? It is, but then weirdly enough, considering we know how greedy these girls are, they actually paid a considerable settlement to the stepmom's family. Okay. Isn't that strange? Yeah. I just think that's weird. And then yeah, finally, uh, uh, go ahead. the thing that precipitated this whole episode showdown is mm-hmm. that both the murder mansion and the mansion that Lizzie Borden died in are up for sale right now. So they went on sale on um, the first, the, the murder mansion, which is a museum and bed and breakfast went for sale on January 20th for $2 million. There you go. Um, or you can also purchase Lizzie and Emma's Maplecroft Mansion, which is what the name of their house was, for $890,000. And it is a seven-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath mansion. Nice. I think makes up for the fact that she lived in a goddamn house with no plumbing for most of her life. <laughs> because her dad was a cheap ass. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, I recommend looking up those listings on realtor.com because you can actually see the pictures of everything. Oh, that's cool. Fully furnished. Totally. I will have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Go on some virtual tours. Yes. Yeah. There's something really sick about doing it, but also get in. Hey, you've got access to it. You got to check it out. Well, I think, I don't know what's sicker. The fact that you can stay in the room that Abby was killed in or the fact (laughs) you could buy the whole house. I mean, I don't. I have no problem checking out pictures of the house if, like, this place has clearly been on display for random people to like hang out in and check out for decades. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, they've had so many like ghost hunt shows go to these houses and stuff. But... Yeah. <laughs> uh... Drama, drama, drama. So yeah, this is the Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden story. Nice was something i was going to ask and i'm trying to remember oh do you know do you know where the whole nursery rhyme thing got started or how that became a thing it was from the uh newspaper so like the newspapers kind of were teasing it and that was so back in the day they when they would sell newspapers the mm-hmm. little hawker kids on the street the newsies yeah would like yell the headlines okay and so that was a quick way for them to yell headlines where to make up little like nursery rhymes. And I okay. believe that that's sense. what I heard it came from. Now that okay. I've said that I'm going to be proven wrong, but yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. Wrong. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But yeah. Cool. Cause yeah, I was wondering when public sentiment turned to the point that clearly now, like, you know, we still have nursery rhymes about her murdering her parents. So, you know, I think it's funny that at the time that's what they did to like cope. Cause like, think about uh, ring around the Rosie yeah. was about, like, what was that spanish flu maybe that was a uh, yeah, black house. death yeah black death yeah so like people just that was their coping mechanism they made up songs about yep. people henry the eighth yeah i just want to know where my oj rhyme is if, you know i know we got screwed on that deal yeah saying. yeah but you remember he didn't do it he yeah, just wrote well. a book that said how he would do it if he did <laughs> so that's what i'm waiting for is them to uncover the how I, you know, how I would have done it book by Lizzie Borden. You know, there was, um, 
I don't know if you ever read Jack the Ripper nonsense, but at some point someone wrote a manuscript called How I Did It by Jack the Ripper. <laughs> it's just total, it's bullshit, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That good stuff. For sure. One thing I was going to ask, I, don't, I can't remember. I've read, you know, listened to enough podcasts and read enough stuff. There's sometime, I think around that time, there were this spree of axe murders were kind of in multiple parts of the country all yeah all linked yeah. together and no one ever pieced together who did it and i wasn't sure if that was anything at all close to the whole lizzie borden time or not kind of um because you've got the valesco ask murders the axe murders that took place in uh no scotia mm-hmm. and then you've got the like louisiana axe louisiana, murders which the were the one, 1920s yeah. though i think it was later yeah, because I know you had the one with the guy demanding that everybody stay up all night and play jazz. Or yeah, the Axeman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe that was in the 20s and 30s, though, because that was jazz era, so. Okay, okay. But this cool. would have been, yep. I mean, 1872, about that period of time. This yeah. murder trial took place over an extremely large swath of time, as far as I was concerned, because we're talking 1800s till mid-1900s. Yeah. yeah. But also that's a very like big way to murder somebody with an ax. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, uh, <laughs> it's not a subtle way to do somebody in, you know, but it would have also been pretty ubiquitous. Everybody would have had a hatchet or an ax, right? Because yeah. most people had wood burning stoves and things like that yeah. at that time. It is most definitely a, an effective and highly ready murder weapon, you know, like, right really have anything sitting around the house right now that you could easily just pick up and murder somebody with you know right i mean now we don't really now we, when you see a murder weapon you see a murder weapon yeah, but yeah. like at that time too it would be nothing for these waspy wasp princesses to go out and murder a chicken for dinner so like yep, yep. they were just a little bit different of a breed i can't imagine myself running out in the backyard and killing a chicken for dinner but yeah yeah, no, just with the, the temperance league and everything, it just makes me think of Carrie Nation, you know, hacking up bars with her hatchet and stuff. So, you know. Yeah. It's clearly clearly the thing, man, you know. I mean, if you got an axe laying around, you might as well, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What you're gonna chop wood or you're gonna just bust some stuff up with it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh no. It's wild. It's a really good idea. I'll have to look in to see if there was like some sort of axe movement or something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of axe murders that happened during this hundred yeah years. it was kind of like you know 1880 to 1920 or something like that you know that there was all this yeah stuff but yeah we're talking about a half a century but yeah i mean that's pretty that's still the fact that we know off the top of our head five major murders that's probably a big sign <laughs> it was the golden age of axe murders there you go let's see <laughs> the gilded age or the axe age either way you know, yeah there you go it's <laughs> the axe murder age <laughs> yeah <laughs> gave way to the machete age and then you know other things yeah oh man i was what was i reading the other day you remember the whole like time period when there were clowns everywhere yes like, i don't know what i was reading but they were talking about clowns and machetes in the woods <laughs> i was like what because <laughs> the the whole clown thing was never really solved on what the heck was going on with that. Yeah. Well, there were several seeing... murders that took place around that time. So, yeah. 
I don't know why. It just reminds me of we started started going back and watching Modern Family with the kids because they'd never watched it, and it's it's just a fun show. But uh, have one of the early ones where Phil Dumphy has his major clown fear, and he's like, I don't know where it came from. I mean, my parents say I found that dead clown in the woods, but you know, I'm sure that's not it. You know, <laughs> you're like, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's probably it, bud. That's yeah, probably it. That might be it. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. I feel like we have enough reason to be afraid of clowns. Um, I'm not particularly afraid of them. I don't necessarily like people in masks, though. So, yeah, like not the mask that we wear now, but like, yeah, I've never been afraid of clowns. I just find them off-putting. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, as a kid, I guess, like, I liked, I was a big fan of, like, the Bozo the Clown show, so I'd always watch that, like, as a little kid, and he didn't freak me out. Now he'd totally freak me out, but, you know. I don't think I ever really found their humor to be funny. I mostly just watched for the grand prize game, so, you know, we would always rig up multiple buckets and throw, like, balls into them and do the whole Bozo the Clown grand prize game thing, so that's about all I even remember from that show. I don't think I ever watched that show. I just know that like when we would go to the circus and stuff, the clowns there would always like do stuff that I just never found funny. Yeah. Like when they would spray water in your face or they did it to each other. I just never found it rather funny. Yep. Yeah. I don't remember it finding it funny. I don't remember a single thing about, yeah. Bozo the clown other than everyone chanting the grand prize game. And then you'd have to like go out. For those that don't know this, the, you know, they have their little like, you know, ticket thing. So it basically there'd be this number that would generate and they'd find the fan with that ticket and they'd come out of the stands and they'd like stand on this spot and they would have like buckets that basically would be one that's like a foot away and then one that's like two feet away and one that's three feet away and four feet away, five feet away. And they'd have like a ping pong ball or something and they'd have to like throw it in the first one. And, you know, they get a prize if they did that. But if they could, like, get into the second one, they'd get more. And the further you go, the harder it is to pull off, not just because it's further, but because you got a ping pong ball and it wants to bounce out. So, right. like, you've got this whole kind of momentum-y thing going. And for some reason, like, we were just obsessed with that. And we would make our own little version of it and, like, play it and stuff. And I had pretty much forgotten all these memories until bringing them up now and going, oh, yeah, God, I remember that. But... I, there you, you know, go. The, the only game show stuff I remember was like uh, Price is Right. Yep. And I knew of Wheel of Fortune and whatever the other one is, Jeopardy, but I never yep. really liked those two. So I never yep. watched them. But man, Price is Right or Super, the original Supermarket Sweep. I don't know if you know this, yeah. but Hulu just recently started a new version of Supermarket Sweep with Leslie oh, nice. J- Jordan. Johnson? Oh, what is that woman's name? She's so funny. She's an actress on SNL. And she's the host, and it's it's excellent. Like, they did a really good job remaking it. Um, but yeah, those are the only things I was ever interested in. Yeah, the one I remember watching a lot was the old Family Feud with, like, Richard Dawson as host and stuff. And that was... Family Feud has had so many hosts. Because Louis Anderson was a host at one time. Steve yep. Harvey's a host. Wasn't Drew Carey a host at one time? I think he might have been. Or he did. I think he might have done The Price is Right after. Yeah. Bob well, Barker yeah. left or something. But yeah. He had no he hair. Probably was too, but yeah. he probably was too. But yeah. I always think just good old Richard Barker or Bob Barker. No, yeah, God. What do I think? Bob Barker? Not Bob Barker. Um, 
Family Feud. Richard Dawson. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking of. Just remember him. He was the original Family Feud guy. It was awesome. Good stuff. The Good current Family Feud is awfully dirty. Like, Yeah, now it's just all an excuse to try to come up with somebody, some general thing to get somebody to say something inappropriate and go, ha, oh, oh, ha, oh. ha. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's but like, yeah. uh, it, it, it was fun. So, yeah. The good old days. Okay. <laughs> you know, that kind of old stuff people reminiscing on... about the good old days. Well, but that used to be on the four channels that we had. Yeah, and exactly. You know, everybody watched the same five shows because we all had only so many TV stations. And yeah, now there's you know. so many and so many ways to find these things that it's kind of like whenever you find a nugget, you got to share this information. Yeah. And that's back when kids were the remote control and you'd walk up and you'd like change the dial on the TV. <laughs> And you, there were always like the channels that had the shows that your your folks watched, like yep. Green Acres. Well, yep. Green Acres was on before Price is Right. Yep. And then we had PBS was really the main channel we had for a while. So, you know, I always got to watch a lot of the painting show with Bob Ross and yep. stuff like that. Yeah, because I remember the main, we had four, five, and nine were like the three main, you know, Yep. Networks, and then 11 was PBS, and then 41 and 62 were the, you know, UHF channels with all the old reruns and random stuff on them. Yep. And there you go. That was it, folks. So, you know. And we loved every second of it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I think too many choices has made it difficult to watch TV now, actually. Yeah. Well, I've heard one thing that is interesting is that, you know, you since everybody had to watch basically the same thing, you got more group, I don't know, group consensus, group feel that like everybody, you know, whether they shared your opinions about anything else or not, everybody watched the same damn TV shows. So you had something to talk about with everybody, you know, like, and some of those kind of just shared experiences are just kind of gone now because there's now enough stuff that everything is diversified and, you know, there's no just, unifying thing that everybody sees watches does whatever and it's kind of it's an interesting interesting topic anyway but no that is an interesting topic i never really thought about that it's very true because you know people my age watch one thing people my folks age watch another thing and people the kids age watch youtube yeah. and i don't even know what the hell's going on that like <laughs> but yeah it's yeah. very confusing <laughs> yep. good stuff well Cool. Well, thanks for the rest of the story. And Absolutely. Isn't that Harvey? What's his name? What? Who's the rest of the story guy? Harvey. Oh, yeah. Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. There we go. That's rest of the, the story, rest dude. of the story. Yeah. Yep. That's some real Western right. Kansas right. talk yeah. right there, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, feel free to Check out our Facebook stuff, rate us, subscribe, review, whatnot, tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, we'll be sure. around next week as well. So uh, we'll catch you all later and uh, have a great week. Bye. Bye bye.